Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I'm sure many of you have heard the old adage, no one knows the future. That's certainly true in terms of the immediate future. But the Christian, the believer in Jesus Christ, does in fact know the future in its ultimate sense. And even though we haven't yet realized God's promise, it is nonetheless certain and sure. And in a word, it's bright. You have a bright future. The Bible calls this optimistic outlook on the future the assurance of hope. And it's a wonderful way to live this present life in the assurance of our final promised rest. I read to you this morning from the sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews, beginning in the 13th verse. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them the end of all strife wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge, to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now this incredibly rich passage brings us to the end of a digression, a divinely inspired digression, I guess we should say, or parentheses that began in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11, after the writer says concerning Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say, but hard to be uttered, seeing that you are dull of hearing. The Hebrews were sluggish. The main highway, the main theme that he has begun to develop in the book of Hebrews is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. What a glorious subject that is, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. That's the main highway, but he takes the off-ramp. In chapter 5, verse 11, and he says, uh, let's digress for a moment. And he travels a service road. That's what we used to call them in Texas, anyway. You take the off-ramp off the interstate, and you travel a little side road, a detour path, if you please. He does that through the balance of chapter 6. He gives them a warning about apostasy or backsliding. And he encourages them to pursue assurance and now he's ready to get back on the main highway as he comes to the end of chapter 6. And the on-ramp to get back to his theme of discussing the priesthood of Jesus Christ is this passage that I've read in your hearing, Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. And you'll notice that once again at the end of this chapter, he mentions Melchizedek. Verse 20, 
whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So in chapter 5, he wanted to say something about him, but he said, you're not quite ready. But after digressing a bit, he decides that he is going to say it anyway, and he does so in chapter 7. So what we have here in Hebrews chapter 6, that is in terms of the context moving forward, the flow of thought in the book of Hebrews moving forward, is, if you please, a transition back to the main theme. And in order to transition back to the main theme, the Apostle Paul introduces the key figure in Hebrew history, the father of the Jewish people. And who is that? Abraham. Now, he's already dealt with some very important figures in the book of Hebrews, Moses and Joshua and Aaron. He's talked about how Christ is greater than Moses. Christ is greater than Joshua. He gives gospel rest not just a political rest like Joshua did in the land of Canaan. He's already developed these themes. But in the Jewish mind, as important as Moses was and Joshua and Aaron, Abraham was still the most pristine figure in Hebrew history. And you'll notice he introduces this important character in the passage before us, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, He swore by himself. Now, why does he introduce Abraham in order to make a transition back to his main theme of the priesthood of Christ? He does so because Abraham predates Moses by about 500 years. Therefore, the Abrahamic covenant, or what is called the promise, was in place prior to the Mosaic covenant, or what is called the law, by at least 500 years. Keep your finger here in Hebrews chapter 6 and turn back to Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 if you would and listen to this passage of scripture. The apostle says, for when God made promise to Abraham, he saith not and to seeds as of many, plural, but as of one and to thy seed which is Christ. Listen, and this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ The law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul. That is, Moses' law does not disannul or supersede the promise that he made to Abraham. The promise that was made to Abraham, he says, the law, which was 430 years after that, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Notice the contrast between the promise and the law. The promise and the law. Abraham's covenant was in force a long time before God gave the law to Moses. And you see why this is important? Because the Hebrews were saying you've got to keep Moses' law in order to be saved. And we have priests under Moses' law. Who was the priest under Moses' law? The tribe of Levi, the descendants of Aaron. But Jesus Christ is a priest before the law of Moses. He comes as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who was a contemporary of Abraham. Now, I know this is high cotton that we're treading right now, but I'm trying to show you the importance of this passage as he transitions back to his main theme, the priesthood of Jesus Christ, and how Jesus is a priest not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, who came before the Mosaic Law, and that's why he introduces Abraham in this passage. The frame of reference that he gives us here is crucial because 
He intends to make a case for Christ's priesthood on the basis of this priestly class that predated Aaron, a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And that's the importance of this passage in the context of what is ahead of us in the next few chapters. You might say, but Brother Mike, how does this passage relate to the preceding context? You know, when you study a verse in the Bible, you need to study it in terms of what comes before it and what comes after it. And I've tried to show you how this passage relates to what is coming in chapter 7 and following. But how does it relate to what we've just read in chapter 6 concerning the subject of assurance? Well, he's going to give us in the passage that I've read before you this morning the ground or the reasons, the basis for Christian assurance. He's going to discuss the ground of our future hope in terms of three great facts. In other words, the believer's assurance concerning the promise of eternal life is premised on these three truths. First, the character of God. Secondly, the covenant of grace. And thirdly, the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the subject before us this morning. For when God made promise to Abraham, God's promise could be trusted. I want to ask you this morning, can you trust most people their word in this world. I know that many of us want to believe as many people as we can. We don't want to be suspicious of everyone. We don't want to see a ghost behind every closet and to think that all men are liars. (laughs) But the fact is, my friends, truthfulness is not something that comes easy to man by nature. You might say today, Brother Mike, who can you trust? I don't know who to trust. I don't know how many times people have said that to me in recent months. As you think about all of the different competing voices in our popular culture, politically, health-wise, you know, this expert says this and this expert says that. And by the way, experts are just little spurts that have gotten a big platform. (laughs) I like what one person said one time, the experts built the Titanic, but the amateurs built the ark. And I don't want to look down condescendingly at somebody's level of education. I know there are people who are experts, but the fact is, we often wonder, who can we trust? What can I believe in what I hear today? We know politicians make big promises, and sometimes they don't fulfill those promises. And you say, I just don't trust anybody anymore. Well, we don't want to become completely jaded to the idea that there are people who are trustworthy, who are faithful. But a faithful man who can find, that was the question in the book of Proverbs, and we wonder today, does anybody tell the truth? Here's the point this morning. You can trust the God of heaven regarding your future. Somebody says, Brother Mike, I don't have a very hopeful outlook on the future. I have a very cynical outlook on the future. The future looks very grim. Well, I know, realistically speaking, in terms of the near future, it doesn't look real hopeful, does it? But let's focus our telescope on the long term. And here's what I have to say. So far as the ultimate future is concerned, my beloved, you have a bright future this morning. And therefore, it's possible for a believer like Abraham who's the quintessential believer in God, a man of faith. It's important for us, my friends, to have an optimistic outlook for the future or to have an attitude of hope. 
You'll see that in our text. This hope we have as an anchor of our soul. We are hopeful people. We have strong consolation because we have fled for refuge, says verse 18, to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. In a world of cynics, in a world of despairing and depressed people, Christians, my beloved, should have a, an optimistic outlook toward the future. You say, well, Brother Mike, I look around, I see what the news says. Well, let's not look at the news then. Let's look at the Word of God. Let's consider Abraham. And here's what we learn from Abraham, that we have a ground or a basis for our hope, for our assurance, in the ultimate sense, because of the character of God. And that's what verse 13 says. For when God made promise to Abraham. Now, who was it that promised Abraham? Not a politician, not a bureaucrat, not an expert, but it's the only true and living God. For when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Now, obviously, the passage to which this has reference is Genesis 15, and God willing, we'll go there in just a moment. It's one of the most interesting and important chapters in all the Bible, Genesis 15. But he's talking about the promise that God made to Abraham. And he says, when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Now, we know what it means to swear by the greater, don't we? In a court of law, a witness is asked to take the stand and to raise his right hand and to repeat with the other hand on the Bible. I don't know if they still do that or not. But they should if they don't. And to swear by the greater. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help me what? God. You're swearing. You're taking an oath by the greater. Now somebody says, I swear on my family name. Or I swear on my good name. I'm telling you, dear friends, if you're going to swear, if you're going to take an oath, like in marriage, we're gathered here in the presence of God and these witnesses. You see, that's not a superficial kind of promise. If you're going to take an oath, and Jesus taught us did need to be careful about taking oaths, swear not at all, neither by heaven nor by the earth, for the heaven is God's throne, the earth is his footstool. He says, Swear not on your head, for thou canst not make one hair white or black. Somebody says, I swear if I'm not telling the truth, may all my hair fall out. He says, if you're going to swear by something, swear by something that can actually hold you accountable. You understand the principle? In other words, my family name cannot hold me accountable. They're not swearing by something greater. Somebody says, I swear on so-and-so's grave. You've heard that expression. Well, that grave cannot do anything to you if you break your promise. So if you're going to take an oath, make sure it's something very important. That's the Bible teaching on oath taking. Be very careful in taking oaths. And if you're going to swear, swear by the God of heaven because he can and does hold us accountable for keeping our word. So men swear by the greater. But when God took an oath... When he promised, because he could swear by none greater, why couldn't he swear by a greater? Because there is none greater than God. Because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. And we're going to show you in just a moment what that means. Saying, 
Here's my promise to you, Abraham. In blessing, I will bless thee, and in multiplying, I will multiply thee. In other words, Abraham, I'm going to multiply blessings to you. Now, God is the great mathematician. We add and subtract and divide, but God is into multiplication. He says, in blessing, I will bless you. That is, while I'm blessing you, I will multiply more blessings. And in multiplying, I will multiply you. God is simply saying to Abraham, I promise to make of you a nation as innumerable, a family, a progeny as innumerable as the stars of the heavens and the sands by the sea. God made a tremendous promise. Now, man could not have fulfilled that promise to Abraham because you know the story of Abraham, don't you? Abraham was childless at age 75. When God made this promise to Abraham, he and Sarah had been married for a good while and they had had no children. Interestingly, his name, Abram, means great father. And I'm sure it must have been embarrassing when someone met Abram on the street corner and said, uh, what is your name? And he said, my name's Abram. He says, then where are your children? And Abram had to admit, I have no children. Then why is your name Abram, great father? God later changed his name 25 years later at age 99, 24 years later, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Now, if you think Abram was embarrassing, great father, father of a multitude, Abraham is even more embarrassing for still he has no children. Not only was Abram an elderly man, but his wife Sarah was barren that is medically incapable of conceiving and bearing a child. And by the time she's 90 years of age, this lifetime of barrenness is compounded by her old age when it is no longer with her as it is the way of women. So Abraham and Sarah feel that they are going to die without any children. But God has promised them, in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thee. And he's sworn that on his own character. He swore by himself. My beloved, could Abraham trust God even though the promise had not been realized? Now I've waited on the fulfillment of what I felt like was a promise. I've prayed about a certain matter and felt like God was going to bless me and answer that prayer. I've waited for 25 days, I've waited for 25 weeks, but I've never waited for 25 years for God to make good on his word. And if you had been in Abraham's sandals or if I had been in his place, I'm sure, dear friends, that we would have been impatient and felt like perhaps we had misunderstood or maybe something had come up that God had not anticipated and he could not fulfill his promise. But I want you to notice that God, who promised Abraham a child, made good on his promise in his old age. You know, Abram and Sarah got to talking after 20 years or so and said, well, you know, apparently God needs a little help to fulfill this promise. So Sarah suggested that Abraham should go into her maid, Hagar. You remember the story? Her Egyptian handmaid and have a child by her and God could fulfill the promise if they helped him a little bit. May I say, when man tries to help God fulfill his promise, he makes a mess of things. And Ishmael was born to Abraham and Hagar. But Ishmael was a wild man. His hand was against every man and every man's hand against him. Now, Abraham loved him. But yet, 
when he said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Lord, look, here's the promised seed. God said, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth from thine own bowels shall be thine heir. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And Sarah, hearing that promise, chuckled within herself. She laughed, as if to say, Ha ha, that'll be the day when I, an old woman, conceive and have a child. And I want you to notice, dear friends, that we have a ground for our hope, even though we haven't realized the promise. For when God made promise to Abraham, and the ground is simply this, my friends, the character of God. You see, God is a God of truthfulness. Theologians call this the veracity or the faithfulness of God. He is the ultimate promise keeper. Look at verse 18. It is impossible for God to lie. That's the veracity or the truthfulness, the faithfulness of God. It's impossible. When the Bible says that something is impossible, do you know what that means? It means it's not possible. It's impossible for God to lie. You say, well, you mean God has never prevaricated? He's never hedged on the truth? He's never had to manipulate his message to maybe encompass, include some extenuating circumstance that was unanticipated. No, my friends, God cannot lie. It can't happen. Now, we can't say that about ourselves, can we? Psalm 116 says, I said in my haste, all men are liars. And if there's one thing that every one of us has in common, it's that at some point in your life or mine, we have hedged on the truth. We have told little white lies, which, by the way, are never quite as white as we like to think that they are. We have broken our word. God has never once in 10,000 years or so of human history in this created universe or in eternity, God has never broken his word. 1 Kings 8.56, Solomon said at the dedication of Solomon's temple, there hath not failed one word of all of his good promise which he hath promised to us. But that was true when Solomon said it. And I want to tell you these millennia later, after Solomon's temple was dedicated, it's still true. There has not failed one word of all of his good promise. And at this late date in history, God is not about to break a track record like that. You say, what if something that he's promised me fails to come to pass? It has never happened that one word fell to the ground without fulfillment, and it will never happen, for it's impossible for God to lie. That's the character, the person of God. My beloved, because of who God is, your future is very bright. Because he's a God who cannot lie. Don't you love that verse in Titus chapter 1 verse 2? In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. My beloved, that's where I stand today. I stand in hope. You see, hope in the Bible is not a flimsy wish. Hope is not a pipe dream, an optical illusion, uh, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can kind of perspective. Hope is a desire accompanied with an earnest expectation of receiving that desire. Hope is faith looking forward. Hope is Christian optimism. Now, I'm not talking about Norman Vincent Peale or Zig Ziglar optimism. You know, lift yourself by the bootstraps, just believe in yourself. Hope doesn't say believe in yourself. It says believe in God. It doesn't turn our eyes inward. It turns our eyes outward 
and upward to God. Hope says your God is able to care for you. And my friend, I would say to you today regarding your future, it looks very bright because the God who promised eternal life to you cannot lie. That's the ground of our assurance, the character, the attributes, the person of our God. In fact, 2 Timothy 2.13 tells us that God can never contradict himself. He says, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, has it ever been true that your faith has flagged, that it has waned, that it has not been strong? There are times in my life when my faith has been weak. Jesus could say to me that, like he said to the disciples on one occasion, O ye of little faith. There have been times, my friends, when I have not been strong in faith. But you know, if we believe not, does that change what God has promised? No, my friends, because your home in heaven, your promised eternal rest, does not depend upon your faithfulness, upon the strength of your faith. It depends upon the faithfulness of God. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, for he, listen, cannot deny himself. Is there anything God cannot do? Somebody says, no, he can do everything. Well, there are several things the Bible tells us he cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot deny himself, and he cannot die. To deny yourself means to be self-contradictory. You know, if I said one day, I will do this, and then the next day I said, I won't do that, if I spoke out of both sides of my mouth with forked tongue, that would be self-contradictory. I'm contradicting myself. God has never and will never contradict himself. Your future hope is based on the veracity, the faithfulness, the truthfulness of God. It's also based on the power of God. If you turn from Genesis 12 where God originally made promise to Abraham that he would have a great family and that he would give him an eternal or an everlasting inheritance in a promised land. If you turn from Genesis 12 to Genesis 17, 24 years later, when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, this is the chapter of new names where God gives Abraham a new name to change his name to Abraham. He changes Sarai's name to Sarah. And God reveals a new name for himself in this chapter. He says, I am the Almighty God. And that is the Hebrew name El Shaddai, God Almighty. And it comes from an Aramaic word which speaks of a mountain, and it means the overpowerer. Have you ever stood at the base of a great mountain and felt to be intimidated by the size of that structure? That's what El Shaddai means, the overpowerer. And when God says, I'm the almighty God, 24 years have passed since I promised you a son and you still haven't had a son. And maybe you think that I'm not able to fulfill that promise. I want to remind you, Abram, that I am El Shaddai, the God whose resources do not run out. And then in the next chapter, it says, at this time next year, your wife Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah chuckled and said, yeah, right, that'll be the day. And God calls her on the carpet. He says, wherefore didst thou laugh? And Sarah says, I didn't laugh. And how foolish we are to think we can pull the wool over on the Lord. He, he said, yea, but thou didst laugh. And then he asks her this question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, my beloved, the Christian can have a hopeful outlook on tomorrow because the God who promised is truthful and he's powerful. 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? I would ask you that question this morning, my friend. Is anything too hard for your God? No, my beloved, the God who created the universe by merely speaking. The God who's parted the Red Sea so that a, an army of over a million strong could cross on dry ground safe to the other side and Pharaoh and his 600 chosen chariots would be drowned in the depths of that sea. A God who can cause the sun to stand still so that Joshua and the children of Israel are able to do battle against the enemy in the valley of Ajalon. A God who can roll the sun backwards 10 degrees on the sundial of Ahaz as he did to give Hezekiah a sign that he would add 15 years to his life. A God, my beloved, who can raise our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. The God of the virgin birth, the God of the incarnation, the God of the resurrection is a God with whom nothing is impossible. Those things that are impossible with us, my beloved, are possible with God. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you can ask or think. Now, I can think, I can imagine some pretty great blessings. God is able to go above and beyond my wildest imagination. I can ask for some pretty great things. You know, a little child can ask mom or dad, Dad, could we get a rocket ship someday and go to the moon? Sure, son, absolutely. But you know, the dad can't fulfill it. I can ask for some great things. But I'll tell you, you can never ask too much of God. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. That's his promise to you and me. The hymn writer put it like this, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. We ask for pebbles and he has diamonds and gems and precious rubies to give us. We ask for dandelions and he has bouquets of roses to give to his people. We ask for gravel, my friends, and God has the riches of heaven and earth to give to you and me. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. How long has it been since you've pondered anew what the Almighty can do? He's the Almighty God. So our future hope is based on the truthfulness of God, the power of God, and the immutability of God. Verses 17 and 18 in our text uses this word immutable or immutability on two occasions, and he speaks of things that are unchangeable about God. Not only will God keep his promise and is he able to fulfill his promise, but he cannot change. If there's anything true about me that is without question, it's that I'm not what I used to be. I change every day. You change every day. We get a little bit older, don't we? Our hair changes colors. Our resilience and energy and strength wanes. And we are changing creatures. But I'm telling you, dear friends, that throughout the eons of eternity, the God of the olden times is just the same today. He cannot change. That's, by the way, why you're still here. I'm the Lord. I change not. Malachi 3.6. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. So notice the ground of Christian assurance is the character of God, his immutability, his power, his truthfulness. It's also the covenant of grace. Listen to verses 16 and 17. For men verily swear by the greater. We've already made that point. Men take an oath based on someone who can hold them accountable. And an oath for confirmation is to men the end of all strife. Now you get two brethren or two men, maybe two neighbors that have strife between them. A conflict. And you reach a point when they say, okay, let's make a promise. 
If we do this, this will settle it. Let's make a contract. Let's enter into a covenant. An oath between men is the end of all strife. We understand that principle. When men take oaths, we can understand why men would enter into a covenant because both parties are sinners. But the holy God of heaven and earth is not a sinner. He doesn't have to add any credibility to his promise for us to believe him, or he shouldn't have to add that. But in order to condescend to our lowest state, in order to go the extra mile, the God who made the promise has gone the extra mile and confirmed it by an oath. He's gone the extra mile so that we would trust him. And he didn't have to do it. That's my point. We do have to do it because we're not God, but God did not have to confirm the promise by an oath. But he did so. And you read about that in Genesis 15. Listen to Genesis 15, verse 8. When Abraham asked God, God said to him, I will make your seed as the stars of heaven. And Abram said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Now God said, what do you mean? Whereby shall you know? I just told you you'll inherit it. But Abram says, Lord, I need some evidence. And God said to Abram to do this. Take a heifer. You know what a heifer is, don't you? Of three years old. And a she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abraham went and gathered uh, the heifer, and the she-goat, and the ram, and then the turtle dove, and the pigeon. And God said to him, divide them in two, except for the birds. Now, if you divide a bird in two, you'd end up with nothing but a bunch of feathers. But uh, if you divide a she-goat, and a ram, and a heifer in two, like a butcher would you know, cut up a, an animal. You've got one part over here and one part over here. Here's half of the heifer, the other half. Here's half of the she-goat, the other half. Half of the round, the other half. And then here's the turtle dove and here's the pigeon. And there's an alley between them. Now we've got pews over here on this side of the church and pews over here and there's an alley between them. That's what God said. You put the divided animals here and the other half here with an alleyway. And God said... Know of a surety. I want you to know this for sure. When the evening set, verse 17 says, the sun went down and it was dark. Behold, a burning lamp and a smoking furnace passed between those pieces. Now smoke and fire, a cloud and fire, are theophanies. That is, visible manifestations of the presence of God. You remember when Moses saw the burning bush. That's a theophany. God is appearing to Moses in that visible manifestation. Do you remember the pillar of cloud that led the children of Israel by day and the pillar of fire by night? Those are theophanies. That is, God is manifesting his presence visibly. And what you have here are a cloud or smoke and fire. Smoking furnace and burning lamp. That is, God these are manifestations of God himself passed between those pieces. God walked down the aisle between the slain animals. Now blood has been shed, right? And God passed. You say, what does this symbolism mean, Brother Mike? It means God is saying, if I break my word, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. I'm putting myself on the line. Interestingly, God didn't say after he walked through those animals, now Abram, 
I've done my part, now you need to walk through the animals and promise also. This is a one-sided or unilateral covenant. It's a covenant of grace, an unconditional covenant. The only party responsible for fulfilling this promise is God himself. Because God could swear by no greater, he's swearing by himself, he's putting his own life on the line. By the way, that's what happened at the cross. God put his own life on the line, right? He allowed himself to be slain like those animals as a fulfillment of his covenant promise to his people. What you have here in Genesis 15 is a one-sided covenant. By the way, eternal life, my beloved, is a one-sided, unconditional, unilateral work of God. Monergistic, not synergistic. God didn't say, I'll do my part if you'll do yours. Many people preach a doctrine that says, sinner, God has done his part. Now you've got to do yours. I'm telling you, as far as your home in heaven is concerned, that promise, my beloved, rests on nothing but the blood of Jesus. That promise rests on Christ and Christ alone, on the covenant of grace. I'm so thankful to believe that before time began, God made a covenant. And it's a covenant in which he unconditionally promised to save all the objects of his love. And the stipulations for fulfilling that covenant rest on God and God alone, not on God and the sinner. That's salvation by grace. That's what I believe. That's what we believe here at Bethel Church. My friends, it is a joyful sound. Blessed are the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. Because the fact is, if God said, okay, I've done my part, but now you've got to do yours, there would be nothing certain or sure This hope we have, says our text, is an anchor both sure and steadfast. Why is it sure? Why can you have assurance in this promise of eternal life? Because it is premised, it is grounded on nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let me read it to you in the words of a hymn. My hope is built, my outlook on the future is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Somebody says, oh, I had a good feeling. He says, whatever frame of mind you're in, he says, that's not a worthy object of your faith. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus. In other words, whether you're on the mountaintop, so far as joy and peace is concerned in your feelings, or whether you're in the valley and you're struggling with anxiety and fear and depression, he says, that's not the ground of our assurance. Whatever your experience might be, He says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. Listen to this song. When darkness seems to hide his face, does that ever happen in your life? You ever tried to pray and it seemed like your prayers didn't get beyond the top of your head? Ever felt like the services were dull and drear in the church? Have you ever reached a point where your heart was cold and numb and you said, Lord, where are you? I know that you're there, but I just can't feel and sense your presence. When darkness seems to hide his face, I don't get worried about it. Here's what I do. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, when the storms of life are raging, he says, my anchor holds because it's anchored within the veil. Listen to this verse. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my Hope and stay on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. My beloved, 
the character of God, the covenant of grace, his unchangeable person and his unchangeable oath. Those are the two immutable things. His unchangeable character, his unchangeable covenant. Those two things cannot be altered. He says, on these two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. I'm comforted this morning. I hope you are. Because we have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. The allusion in that language is to the six cities of refuge that were placed for those who had committed manslaughter. Not murder, but manslaughter in ancient times. They had accidentally killed somebody. They were responsible for the loss of life accidentally. Manslaughter. He says the manslayer can flee to one of these six cities of refuge. And when he flees to the city... He's to lay hold on the horns of the altar and he can't be touched when he's fled for refuge to lay hold on the horns of the altar. He uses that language now, that allusion, to teach us what the Christian convert who's come to gospel understanding has done. He's fled from this world to find refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ and his covenant of grace. And this hope that is set before us, notice the language of future expectation, this hope that is set before us. You say, Brother Mike, right now, I need help right now. Well, this future prospect, my beloved, should help you right now because it makes you optimistic and hopeful for the future. Then he says, this hope is an anchor of our souls. I want you to notice the nautical imagery in these verses. He mentions an anchor. Where have you seen an anchor? On a ship, right? And then he mentions a forerunner, and a forerunner in verse 20, whether the forerunners for is that little boat that is let down by the side and that goes into the harbor for the big ship. It carries the anchor with it and it anchors in the harbor. The little dinghy takes the anchor into the harbor and it anchors it there even though the ship has not yet made port. That's the forerunner. This nautical imagery in these verses is another argument for the Pauline authorship of the book of Hebrews because Paul was a seafaring man. He traveled on the high seas on numerous occasions and he used nautical imagery, marine imagery, uh, many times in his letters. It's not prima facie evidence, but it is circumstantial evidence for the Pauline authorship of this book. He says, our hope is like an anchor that has been taken by the forerunner, even Jesus, into the veil. Our great high priest now has entered behind the veil and he's carried with him the reason for our hope and he set the anchor in the harbor. Our ship is still out here in the storms of life, isn't it? Your life, my beloved, is buffeted and battered by the storms of life, but I'm telling you, we're going to reach port at last because our forerunner, Jesus Christ, is already there. And he says, this optimistic outlook for the future is based on God's unchangeable character, his unchangeable covenant, and the cross of Christ. If you study the example of Abraham, you know that in Genesis 22, after the promised child had been born, God said, I want you to slay him. And he took him up on the mountain, and before he slew the son, the Lord stayed his hand and he saw a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns, and that ram was offered in the stead of Isaac. And what a picture that is of the cross of Christ. Abraham, Jesus says, saw my day on the top of Mount Moriah. 
And the cross of Christ is alluded to when he says our forerunner Jesus has entered behind the veil. He's safe at home. And my beloved, even though you're not there in the harbor, you haven't reached port yet. I'm telling you, his presence there guarantees that you will surely follow. Your anchor's there. Right now we have hope in our final rest because our Lord Jesus has fulfilled the covenant of grace. Because of these three truths, God's unchangeable character, his unchangeable covenant, and the cross of Christ, you and I have a bright outlook on the future this morning, I trust, even though we've not yet realized that hope in full. What God has promised has not yet been realized, yet we know that his promises are sure, and we have reason today to live in hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. You are listening to Grace Alone Radio Network, streaming Bible teaching from a primitive Baptist perspective, around the clock and around the world.